APRA acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm George Hyde. Today's episode is on safe and person-centred healthcare for refugee and asylum seeker communities. We'll be discussing the healthcare experiences of refugees and asylum seekers and some of the challenges that they face. We'll also talk about what respect and person-centred care looks like for communities who come from asylum seeker backgrounds and whose voices may not be easily heard. Joining me today are our guests Dr Nadia Chaves, Infectious Disease Specialist, Councillor Tagist Kabidi and Lawyer Saima Sibiri. Tagist, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Uh, I am a counsellor and advocate. I live in Nam or Melbourne and I've worked in uh, non-profit settings. Um, I've worked in refugee and asylum seeker services, in the sexual assault and family violence services in the drug and alcohol space as a counsellor and an advocate. Um, a lot of the work that I have done has been in and around community and understanding how trauma impacts our communities. And a lot of the um, principles that kind of guide me is ensuring that uh, the various lived experiences that we have or the intersectional identities that we have are honoured and upheld in uh, health services. Thanks, Tagist. Nadia, could you tell us a bit about yourself, please? I'm an infectious diseases specialist and I work across uh, community health and public hospitals. Um, I work at the Alfred Hospital and in CoHealth in Kensington. Uh, but I've basically, across my career, I've had a focus on person-centred care, which means making sure, as um, Tigger said, that we take into account people's experiences, their needs, their values, their preferences when being able to offer them health care. I've been working um, with people from refugee and asylum seeker background for nearly a decade. I was a refugee and asylum seeker health fellow in Victoria, which is a position at a hospital, which um, as a medical person working with the Refugee Health Network to help improve access to care for people of refugee and asylum seeker background. Um, I've also worked um, with uh, assessing asylum seekers for unmet medical need in offshore detention centres um, and I was the public health expert for the Australian Human Rights Commission report into COVID-19 management of risks in immigration detention. Thanks, Nadia. And Saima, could you tell us a bit about yourself as well, please? Um, so my name is Saima and I'm originally from Afghanistan. I'm a Hazara ethnicity and um, my parents or my father actually came to Australia as an asylum seeker himself about 22, 23 years ago. And we followed him about six years later. Um, I've worked in um, a range of, I guess, areas uh, in uh, assisting really mainly refugees and asylum seekers, uh, initially starting as a primary health project officer at one of the Medicare locals in the southeast of Melbourne and moved on to study law and worked in sort of um, legal assistance services as well, mainly helping people apply for protection while they're in Australia and um, yeah, currently work as a lawyer as well. Um, so my sort of uh, my own background, my personal heritage, my identity really uh, comes into a lot of the, the work I do in the community um, in assisting refugees and asylum seekers in whatever space I can. Thanks, Soma, and welcome everyone. Um, Tagist, I'll, I'll start with you. Are there th- common themes or healthcare experiences, uh, be they positive or negative, that people from refugee and asylum seeker communities report? A lucky first one at the gate. Um, 
I have a history of being a refugee in this country, but my experience was quite young. I was a child and I um, saw that experience through my mother um, and then um, respectively through other family members and then in adulthood watching um, and participating in that work and working in that sector. I think that people's experiences can be quite varied in terms of the helpful experiences. I think that there are services out there that are helping and that are doing particular work around ensuring that um, the, the best healthcare is out there. I think there might be significantly more barriers than there are um, uh, benefits in the sense that it is extremely difficult to navigate through these systems. And I think that's a structural issue in terms of the way our medical system might be set up, the way um, someone's uh, legal status in Australia is set up and what they have access to and what they don't have access to. And then we look at people's experiences of the healthcare system in terms of um, whether or not it's accessible culturally, um, linguistically, um, whether or not uh, people's own biases are impacting um, how they treat um, particular presentations. And I think what often happens is that given that our healthcare system is a deficit-based system where how bad the situation is is how much help that you're going to get, especially in the public system, people have to have so much um of their own advocacy as well as external agencies advocating for them, whether it be a social worker, whether it be a, a lawyer, whether it be someone in their family who can speak English very well in order to get anything to kind of go through. And I think these structural issues uh, reinforce or can recreate traumatic experiences for people and, and makes the, their experience of healthcare quite difficult and also I think it ensures that people who do engage in the healthcare system come in a lot later instead of doing preventative care a lot earlier, they would be coming in there a lot later um, due to these accessibility issues. That's really interesting. Um, thanks, thanks to Geist. Uh, Saima, do you have anything to add? Basically, I think the um, I think common themes in terms of common themes and health experiences, I think what I can definitely say from my experience uh, from working with uh, refugees and asylum seekers, particularly from Afghanistan, is that, um, you know, health isn't really a, you know, once they arrive in Australia, for example, you seek all sorts of medical assistances and you're sort of done. Um, or, you know, for a couple of years, for example. I think for for most of the people I've come across uh, from Afghanistan in particular, it takes them years and years and years before they realize that they've got, you know, psychological and emotional and mental health issues that they need to work on. You've spoken there about some of the challenges faced by refugee and asylum seekers from Afghan communities. I wonder, could you elaborate and speak about the specific barriers faced by that community? Some of the some of the common themes that sort of are quite prominent in the Afghan community, particularly in the Hazaras, because of their you know ongoing persecution in Afghanistan, uh, being currently of course by the Taliban, um, uh, you know, is uh, when they first start seeking assistance for a medical issue or uh, you know multiple medical issues, and uh, there's always this a common complaint of you know we're not given enough medications to treat. The, the illness um, where uh, we're given, you know, for example, a Panadol to treat this particular illness or, you know, a lifestyle, a lifestyle changes aren't really directly related to health uh, outcomes, for example. So there are some common themes within the community, you know, that 
there's this perception that you know if we're given we're given stronger medications that that means the illness is quite a sort of serious illness whereas if we're not it's not um and you know um counseling is not really helpful you know people don't really know where we're coming from people don't really understand what our issues are they can't really resolve the ongoing persecution in afghanistan for example so you know from all of that it creates this this gap between a person wanting to go and seek assistance in the first spot and then you know going through the health system itself the challenges of you know um the cultural as you said the the practical you know interpreting barriers as well for example Hmm. Thanks, Saima. Um, Nadia, picking up on the issue of the availability of practitioners and health services, just to clarify, can you explain to us what healthcare does the government cover for refugees and asylum seekers in Australia? Sure. So I think it's worth um, saying to start with that I think the definition of um, who is a refugee is, is worth kind of clarifying. So someone who's of a refugee background is really someone who's fled their home for reasons of race, religion, uh, nationality, um, membership of a particular social group or a political opinion. If someone actually comes to Australia on a refugee visa, they're eligible for Medicare. Um, however, if someone comes with the same sort of background but is an asylum seeker or married to a refugee and came in on a different sort of visa, really their Medicare access varies um, and it depends on the sort of visa they have and um, a certain proportion of asylum seekers are not eligible for Medicare at all and have very limited access to medical treatment. That being said, in Victoria at least, and I'm not sure about the different states, they're eligible for public hospital care, but it doesn't necessarily cover um, dental or doesn't cover medications. Um, I guess one positive thing to think about is some of quite a lot of the community health organisations, when someone is newly arrived in the country, um, are, we are able to offer. Um, vaccinations, including catch-up vaccinations. Um, and so when we were looking at, I, was, I worked um, as the clinical lead for five community health organisations uh, called the C19 Network in Victoria, and we provided vaccinations for people who are most at risk. And we were able to, um, on community initiation, get vaccinations for people who wanted it, but also provide vaccinations for people of refugee background. So people who were newly arrived refugees were actually vaccinated above, say, people from migrant heritage in the same country, in the same city, who were less able to vac um, access vaccinations. And is that um, COVID vaccines or all vaccines? It's all vaccines, yeah. It's all vaccines, yeah. Um, so it's worth being aware, I think, whenever you're from a country which may have not had a, um, a health service that you're able to access and then you've come to this country, um, you are through the guidelines, which I think you'll put in the, a link, refugeehealthguide.org.au um, has a list of, of health care that you could offer people, including mental health care, but other sort of health conditions and, and catch up vaccinations. So anyone could be eligible for vaccinations, but depending on their um, level of Medicare, they may not be able to get them. But COVID vaccines are eligible for anyone regardless of Medicare status. So that's really important to understand. Thanks, Nadia. Saima, we know that one of the things that um, people who move to Australia have to navigate could be accessing care in a language that isn't their first language or that they don't know at all. Uh, in this case, uh, there might be an interpreter or a family member. C could you talk to us all about that or, or in general what it's like to receive care in a language that isn't your first language? Sure. Um, I think, uh, firstly, I, I um, have never used an interpreter myself, so I'm not sure how sort of 
coming from that sort of receiving end feels like but I am a professional interpreter myself so I know what it feels like to interpret for people so um and I know for a fact that when interpreting um in medical settings uh or whatever setting it is I guess um you lose quite a lot of the the really crux of the sort of the conversation in interpreting so as much as you try to sort of get the point across there there, there are things you know cultural sort of aspects that are not really spoken sort of silent cultural signs and you know subtle hints of about you know particular things in their lives aren't really you know you're not as a professional interpreter you're not really out there to do to do that it's only the spoken words that you can interpret in terms of uh receiving healthcare in in another language i think uh from experience with my family in in the community i i know for a fact that uh, you know there are times when um language barriers for example lead to miscommunication uh, misdiagnosis of issues or uh, incorrect diagnosis if if I may say and you know it also of course that goes to reducing the patient's satisfaction of the service provided to them um the the other thing I also wanted to point out is sometimes you've got doctors or medical professionals be you know counselors or psychologists or GPs who are trained overseas and they've got their own sort of perspectives around how particular health issues need to be addressed so in some um in, in some countries medical professionals aren't GPs in particular aren't trained in sort of the diagnosis of mental health issues as they are in Australia I think so um and in that I think it's sometimes GPs miss um diagnosing community members particularly refugees and asylum seekers with a particular mental mental health issue and sort of to progress that into the next level of let's do a mental health care plan for example for you let's do this let's uh, forward you to sort of let's refer you to a counselor for example so all of that could really be effective thanks so much for sharing your insights and experiences saima tagist can you tell us how trust can be built with people who have experienced trauma and have a complex history where do we begin i think um I'm going to rewind a little bit backwards and talk a little bit about what, while I won't speak about what trauma is, I will speak about what the experience of what trauma does to you, the impacts of that. And for people who have experienced um, significant trauma, whether it's um, uh, something like refugee and asylum seeker trauma of leaving your country, whether it was a single incident, um, you, the impact of that is that you're experiencing a violation of your safety and you've been most often stripped of your choice, choice of what you want to do, how you want to engage. You are responding from a place of self-preservation. Um, and I think what tends to happen is that we tend to think of that traumatic experience existing on its own and that's it. Whereas um, when people are engaging, whether it is with myself in a, a healthcare space or whether it's engaging in other services, we can carry that and we can carry our relational experience that we have with service provision, with professionals, with people in powerful positions or people who have um, the authority to make decisions about our lives. And I think if the impacts of trauma is our choices taken away, we are disempowered um, and um, we are quite fearful and distrusting, then the way in which we kind of... uh, reconnect with people especially as a service is by reconnecting through the the things that have been um that ruptures have formed in so it would be 
utilizing trauma-informed care principles such as safety, choice, collaboration, trustworthiness, and empowerment um, in, in engaging with people. Um, so while that kind of sounds like, oh, yeah, we can just, you know, just be a trustworthy organization, I think we need to have um, a little bit of nuance in the way that this is kind of enacted in, right? And a little bit, and I often use intersectional lenses in which to look at what does something like safety actually mean for someone who's entering a service? And Saima kind of mentioned earlier around, for first and foremost for me, cultural safety. So I'll be asking questions about who is delivering this information? Um, what is the gender of the person delivering the information? What is the languages they speak? Is this something that's culturally safe? Is this culturally sensitive? Um, does this make sense? in relation to the other person's community or what kind of happens in their spiritual practice. Um, and utilising these nuances and kind of like these intersectional lenses in each of these guiding principles means that you do have a person-informed care. So an example of this would be um, last year I worked quite heavily with um, Foundation House in helping the community get vaccinated um, from, from COVID. And the, the, the biggest push was everyone needs to get vaccinated, especially if you're living in Victoria. No one wanted to be, um, like, stuck at home for another six months. Everyone was really hating it. And it was like, well, the lowest numbers are within um, uh, culturally diverse communities. We need to get their numbers up. And I think the, the largest point of advocacy that I had to do was with organisations and stakeholders to say, okay, we need to meet community members where you, where they're at and we need to ensure not just, oh, you have someone who's of their colour or of their same spiritual or cultural background speaking with them, but that you need to be actually responding to what issues the community are bringing towards you. In order to create trust, you need to be collaborating. So if I'm saying to you, you need to be vaccinated, and the other person saying to me, I need help with employment, then we need to be having a conversation here where it's not, I'm telling you this is what you need to do. We need to be seeing what's important in the context of kind of what is happening for you. And a lot of that work um, for me was reaching out into my own Ethiopian community and um, uh, Western suburbs community in Melbourne um, and being a point of conversation for people, not responding to medical issues because it wasn't a medical issue. It was a lot of social concern that was happening for people that they needed to kind of offload and to think through. And if, unless we have that buffer and we sit there and go, okay, let's have this conversation, that's when people can make an informed choice. That's when people can feel like I'm empowered because I know all the information. And that's when it People can feel that I trust this person I'm speaking with because they're not simply asking something from me, but they are sitting through the complicated experience that I'm having and they're sitting through the end, which might mean I get my COVID jab or it might mean I don't get my COVID jab, but I'm, I get to make that choice in that. And I think this is the reason why I think towards the end, some of the highest vaccination rates were in places like public housing estates, um, in culturally diverse communities. And when we were running community um hubs of vaccination. So working with the local health professionals there, but it was community organized. So there was literally a list of people um, in calling each other through 
WhatsApp groups, through Viber groups, through Zoom groups, church groups, mosque groups, who are all kind of going, okay, I trust so-and-so. And because I trust that person, um, because they're my community member, I will then book myself into the local one, not the hospital, the stadium, or the medical um, place. The, the, the places that were being completely booked out was local grassroots community organisations. And they were the ones that fostered all these trauma-informed principles, but they had did it in a way that was organic and they had done it in a way that was um, really kind of genuine in the sense of connection and the, uh, the sense of healing. And I think that is how we engage with people who have experienced uh, extensive trauma or have a complex history is because it's not the, um, the, the person that's the issue, right? It's always going to be the system. And what we need to do is navigate through that system in a way that makes sense for whether it's one person or groups of people. So that's how I've found that the best health outcomes require a lot of work at the start in terms of engagement and in terms of building those key principles. But once they're done, if we're doing it in a nuanced way, we have people who not just look like you but speak the same language as you, but also there throughout the whole process, then I, th I think you're going to get quality um, outcomes Nadia. I just have to say, oh, wow, because I just, Tiggist, just the way that you expressed what you just did was so beautiful. Um, it's, it, that is actually what real person-centred care is. What it is, it's meeting people where they're at and listening to what really matters to them before you, rather than ramming your health ideals down their throat. <laughs> And so to be so forceful like that, but I see this happen so much in, um, especially in hospitals, you see that someone's diagnosed with something and, and this happens regardless of cultural background, let's be honest. If you don't actually listen to what that person really wants, they'll never be on the same page as you. And so why would you not do it? <laughs> it's going to have better healthcare outcomes. A really practical example. So I work um, in co-health in Kensington in a, in a clinic that I set up to really be, um, for people to be able to access specialist infectious diseases services, but without having to go into a hospital. Um, and so I get referrals from local GPs um, and someone, for example, might be referred to see me because they have chronic hepatitis B. Um, and often that may have been done, hopefully with their permission as a test when they come for something else, but often they don't necessarily have any idea about what this diagnosis means. But before I go into it, I say, what is the thing that's really worrying you? Um, and look, sometimes it's housing. Sometimes it's a toothache. Um, and because of the way co-health operates, which is really using a social model of care, I stop what I'm doing and I actually don't get into their hepatitis B yet. And I actually, I've walked people around to the dentist <laughs> next door. I love it that I can do that. They have you know, priority access for dental services because unless someone has their toothache addressed, how can they take care of their, their other health issues. You know, of course, if someone was direly unwell, I could address that. But if someone's got a chronic infectious diseases condition that doesn't really bother them, we really need to work out what does, how I can actually help them. Um, I've also had a young woman who had something called latent tuberculosis, which is um, an infection that isn't infectious to anyone else, but can um, become worse down the track. And when she came to see me sick, she had such bad anxiety um, and she was from a refugee background that she couldn't get her 
her latent TB treated. And I was completely comfortable with that. I informed her of her choices and I said, you know what, let's see how we can work with you um, and help you get the help that you need. And I'm so proud to tell you that she's now a nurse. She's had her latent TB treatment and she is an advocate for um, management of anxiety for people from refugee backgrounds and migrant backgrounds. And she's such a strong and amazing person. Um, and really important to also say, so her experiences of racism in the community, um, just because she wears a hijab, her daily experiences of racism have really impacted her anxiety levels. Um, and so I don't think this is something we haven't brought up yet <laughs> on this podcast. We need to say it out loud that people from non-white backgrounds in Australia experience racism sometimes on a daily level, some of my clients, and you would not actually believe that. And when Tigist mentions intersectionality, what she mentions is say, so I'm brown, but I speak English and I'm a doctor. So my levels of privilege is so high that when I experience racism, it doesn't touch me the way some of my clients get touched when they experience racism because they're less um, privileged. They may not speak English as a preferred language. They're disempowered in the power interplay that occurs in society. They may not have access to a secure job. Um, they may not have the education levels to understand where that person came from with the comment that they made. And their experiences of trauma means that any extra trauma further disempowers them in their ability to feel safe. Tigis, you'd like to say something? I think, Nadia, um, you raised some really good examples of kind of how people can be um, discriminated against in the system. And it reminds me of examples um, within my own family and within my own community of how how health professionals own internalized, whether it's Islamophobia, anti-blackness or other forms of kind of um, uh, socialized um, understandings of um, large communities that are not inherently correct, um, impacts people's health experiences. And I was speaking to a good friend of mine and they are Ethiopian Muslim family and um, uh, uh, their his wife is also hijabi wearing and she's had now had four kids and they're quite a young couple. I think they're in their early 30s. And with all of their experiences, he is someone who um, speaks English quite well, um, but he is black. And anytime there's any kind of health information that is provided, he goes, I will always never speak at my wife's um, medical appointments in relation to the baby um, because I inherently feel uncomfortable because they see my name and it's clearly a Muslim name and my wife is clearly hijabi wearing. And I've, I've had numerous incidences where there has been assumptions made about our relationship that's not based on any kind of medical information. And an example being um, that the wife did not want um, to have a cesarean. She said, I want to have my children naturally. I don't want a cesarean. She made a few decisions um, in their, their follow-up appointments. And multiple, uh, multiple nurses throughout different pregnancies would often turn around and look at the part husband and then look at her and be like, would you like to speak with me by yourself? Or, um, you know, you can attend this appointment without your partner. Um, and 
he would often feel so uncomfortable that he would leave the room and go, oh, I'm actually okay for you to have these conversations without me being present. Well, I remember going along to as a, as a first-time dad to some of those appointments and they were confronting enough as they were. I can't even imagine, I can't even fathom how this gentleman must have felt. And I think something as small and minute as this, and we call it a microaggression, has such a huge impact on the quality of medical care that someone will have that that woman was undermined in the sense of her own agency and choices that she can make. Assumptions were made about the partner and these assumptions, um, while we'll never know clearly exactly what they are, were made towards him and that made him feel that it was either about his religion or his race or both. And I think that these incidences happen all the time. It's shown through um, the statistics of uh, the healthcare experiences, whether it be of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or people of other um, various um, uh, cultural backgrounds, that their experiences within the healthcare system often require themselves advocating for themselves. And there are statistics that show that um, some medical professions believe that certain population of groups of people, such as African people, have a higher propensity for pain tolerance or they will not believe, be believed in regards to the pain that they experience. Um, and I think that these are the things that we don't really talk about and we don't really um, understand how great that influence is and why that, that experience can um, relate to why there might be a high mortality rate for um, particular demographics of people with giving birth and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think when it comes to, as a healthcare professional, I think while it's great to do cultural sensitivity training and it's why it's really cute to have that in your organisation, I think what is actually needed is a, a great rehaul in terms of what policies and frameworks and um what we are using in terms of understanding um, the people that we are serving and not just the people of colour or not just people that we see as diverse because we are comparing them to the stock standard, which is um, the white cishead um, male, right? So we need to be kind of reframing all of this and not just be giving particular services or understandings just for this demographic of people and they'll treat everyone else the same. Great point, Tegeest. Cultural safety training isn't enough. Um, we do need a paradigm shift here and it's up to all of us to do more. I think these types of conversations are actually a really good first step. Um, Saima, uh, are there any overarching principles, resources or practices that you'd encourage practitioners to seek out um, or to adopt to provide safe healthcare to refugees and asylum seekers? Um, I definitely do. And I think uh, part of that will come from um, speaking to practitioners or organisations that already provide that sort of care, a homework really, you know, finding out sort of what uh, patterns of behaviour, what patterns of health issues and, you know, cultural, uh, I guess, um, hesitations are there, you know, commonly there in refugee and asylum seeking communities. From, you know, personal experiences within the Afghan community, there is this culture of uh, fatalism and a culture of stoicism where, you know, it, it's a belief within the community that, you know, certain um, health issues and certain personality issues or mental health issues are, are a part of you and they're not to be treated and you, you must sort of live with them or you must, uh, I guess, have patience and, and understand that, you know, these things are there, you know. Uh, and that, you know, we're, we're not suffering as much as previous generations have suffered. Therefore, we should be grateful for what we've got today. So when 
patients do come to medical practitioners with that sort of, uh, uh, you know, beliefs and assumptions, it's not always obvious for, uh, you know, I, I can just almost guarantee that medical professionals don't have this magical power of sort of knowing that, you know, this particular patient isn't telling me all of their story, you know. Um, but there, there's this common theme that goes on within the community and it, the, if particular, you know, members within the community or leaders within those communities have that sort of strong beliefs about pain management of pain, mental health issues, it is quite a widespread thing. Communities generally follow, uh, you know, the community leaders. Um, there are, you know, outstanding sort of members who will sort of bring up that issue and say, you know, no, 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 that's not the right way. We've got services in Australia who can assist you or who, who can provide you that assistance. So I think um, for medical professionals who are treating refugees and asylum seekers, it's really important to know that patients do uh, come up uh, with that sort of, you know, sometimes with with, with, with assumptions that they ne- they cannot be treated or they cannot be assisted, and that medical professionals cannot always sort of understand their uh, historical issues, their current issues. It is okay not to know uh, what their historical contexts are or historical issues are. It's okay not to know what their current, uh, you know, situations back in their countries of origin are. It's it's okay not to sort of know what to do with those. But it's it's. I think it's important to ask them the right questions, ask them questions so that at least you know that that is something that's playing up, you know, in, in their in their bodies, for example, presenting all sorts of medical um, symptoms, you know, health symptoms, basically, um, and and sort of seeing seeing this person as a as an individual, as a and seeing their health conditions as a holistic sort of approach. Basically, uh, refugees and asylum seekers, you know. They're, they're a whole package, basically, with, you know, social, economic, um, identity and belonging issues, cultural barriers, language barriers, issues of settlement, resettlement in Australia. You know, they've got family members back home who are still um, threatened by, you know, uh, terror, you know, ongoing persecution in their countries of origin. So if a patient does come to a doctor to seek assistance, it may not always be as obvious as it seems sometimes. You know, you need to sort of dig, dig in a little bit more and find out what is going on in their lives. Thanks, Saima. And thanks, um, all of you, for a fantastic conversation. Nadia, if I could ask you this one last question, what's your vision for the future of healthcare for refugees and asylum seekers here in Australia? So I really hope that People who are fleeing their home because their lives are at risk and who come to Australia are able to find safe haven here. I mean, that would be my ideal. Like that's the future of healthcare for for people is that one that they feel safe and they know they can settle here. Because I know for many thousands of asylum seekers around Australia at the moment, they have no idea what's going to happen to them. Thanks, Nadia. I I think that's a future we all hope for. And thanks to you all for being on Taking Care today. Um, Nadia, Tigist and Saima. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you very much for having me today. And thanks to all of you for listening to Taking Care. If you'd like more information on the resources discussed in this episode, please check out the show notes. And if you have any questions or comments, please email us at communications at arpra.gov.au. You can also check out our back catalogue, subscribe and review us by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player. See you next time.